Brand marketing is no longer just about television commercials and newspaper ads. Today, businesses have to provide consumers with experiences that allow them to build a connection with their brands. To learn more about this new reality, members gathered at an Ivy Ideas Night with Dominic Sandifer, a pioneer in branded content and experiential marketing. As the founder and CEO of Greenlight Media and Marketing, a Live Nation company, Dominic's clients have included Intel, American Express, Hyundai, Logitech, and Under Armour, among many others. In this episode of the Ivy Podcast, Dominic shares his rich insights and experiences in the world of experiential marketing, discussing the relationship between content, media, and audience engagement in the era of branded entertainment. Yeah, hi, so I'm Dominic. Uh, and I was saying I ran uh, Global Brand Partnerships for Universal Music Group. I worked for Jimmy Iovine there. Um, but before that, in my early 20s, um, I started in the sports business, actually. Uh, right out of college, I was a college athlete at UCLA. And um, I got recruited into the sports business and worked for a company called Upper Deck, which is a brand marketing trading card company, actually. And I did that for three years, and I worked with a lot of talent. So I worked with Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, and Mickey Mantle, and all this talent. Um, spent a lot of time with those guys and learned sort of the brand marketing and experiential world. We did a lot of events. We did a lot of merchandise. We did a lot of uh, licensing and did a lot of brand marketing. So I kind of learned um, you know, the brand marketing world at, at the Upper Deck Company. Uh, I then started my own agency when I was 25 called the McSan Group. I ran that for four years, and it was a sports and entertainment marketing agency, and I sold that to Peter Goober at Mandalay Entertainment Group, um, and we started Mandalay Branded Entertainment. This was back in 1999, um, before there was such a thing as branded entertainment. Actually, there's been, branded entertainment's been around for a long time. Um, I think there might be a few people that have heard of the Texaco Star Theater, the way television originally start, started uh, back in the 50s. It was all sponsored, it was all branded content. At one point, you probably didn't realize this, but uh, Procter & Gamble was one of the biggest producers of television in the world, producing all kinds of different soap operas. They're called soap operas because they sold soap. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Well, I also just thought about the Omaha Steaks with the Wild Kingdom, like that was a big thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so we started Mandalay Branded Entertainment in 1999. We were doing it before there was really any money to do it. Um, and I was, I think I told you this earlier, I was the guy talking to CMOs going, hey, have you heard of this thing called the DVR, the Digital Video Recorder? Um, because if you haven't, people are going to start using it and they're going to start paying attention to your commercials. So you're probably going to have to do something like create content or experiences that they're really interested in, um, that they want to choose to engage in. And that was sort of the start of what we now know as sort of brand content, branded entertainment age that we live in today. And there's a lot of brands doing good and bad branded content. So I ran that company and then I got recruited from that company by Jimmy Iovine to, to Universal Music Group and started, I was supposed to start, but essentially Greenlight is today, sort of this hybrid of a agency and a content studio. Um, and we were going to partner with Interpublic Group. I don't know how many people here are familiar with Interpublic Group, one of the largest advertising holding companies and Coca-Cola was going to be our first client, and the deal kind of fell apart. Mm. So I was at Universal Music Group with this job that was supposed to start this new agency model that didn't exist. And uh, what happened was I spent the next two years learning from Jimmy Iovine the art of music marketing. And I'm sure most people in the room probably know who Jimmy Iovine is. Jimmy is the founder of Interscope Records and Beats, went to Apple Music. He's one of the pioneers in the entertainment business and the uh, branded content business. And I learned music marketing from him. So I saw at that point, this was 2002, that there was a ton of chaos in the music business. Um, the music business was sort of falling apart. Downloads were free. Uh, nobody was paying for music anymore. And what was interesting is that more and more brands wanted to be in music. 
They wanted to use music as a vehicle for their brand messaging, and they wanted to sponsor everything. But sponsorship doesn't matter. If you just put your logo up on something, and you don't create an experience, you don't create something that people can engage in, who cares? It's just borrowed equity at that point. I've always believed that there's a right and a wrong way of doing sort of brand marketing, sponsorship, if you will, because I think sponsorship is sort of a dirty word. And branded content is the space that I decided I wanted to build my new agency in. And I founded it with Corin Capshaw. Corin is from Red Light Management. Uh, Red Light Management is a little... Now they're the second largest independent artist management firm in the world, managing artists like Lionel Richie, and Dave Matthews Band, and Ben Harper, and a variety of others. About 250 different artists now. Um, but he was a big music manager and an entrepreneur. And he'd founded a number of different companies and music festivals like Bonnaroo and a few others. And I think I told you this earlier, we were sitting at lunch here in Los Angeles. He's from Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, he's kind of a country boy. Um, and I'm a little bit more of a city slicker. So we're sitting at lunch at, uh, at the Ivy, and he, uh, and he says, you know, I'm really interested in partnering with you and what do you want to do? And I told him what I wanted to do. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what the F you're talking about, but you really seem like you do. So he said, what do you need? And I said, you know, I really need to go hire some really smart guys, some really great strategists, some great creatives, some great producers, because I want to scale up this business. And I'd been doing all those things. I'd been the head of brand strategy. I'd been the head of creative. I'd been the producer. You can't scale a business with one person. So I was fortunate that I was able to go out and find some really talented strategists, some incredible creatives, some incredible producers, and build Greenlight into what it is today. And then two years ago, we sold uh, the majority of it to Live Nation. That's amazing. And it's cute, too. I, I once heard a quote by Stephen Bochco that said, if I'm the best writer in the writing room, we have a problem. So you, understanding all of those hats that you've worn, you know, you know somebody else has got to be better at me than me at this job. And what's interesting, too, about Greenlight being the name, I was going to ask you Greenlight, but you almost answered it in your presentation of how it came to be, how did it get its name? Mm, that's a good question. I did not want to call it Greenlight. I had written a business plan and I had a number of different names. One of them was called was Scratch, uh, like from scratch. And uh, that's really what I wanted to call it. And But I didn't, I had Greenlight as the placeholder on the cover page for the business, uh, for the business plan I'd written. And I gave it to Corin and Corin's companies are red light. And so when we sat down, uh, he said, well, what, what do you want to call it? And I said, well, I want to call it Scratch or this or that. And he goes, well, I really like green light. I'm like, no, we're not calling it green light. You're red light. We can't call it green light, red light. That's stupid. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't say it was stupid. You don't tell Corn he's stupid. Corn's not stupid. But uh, he said, no, 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 we're, we're going to call it green light. I'm putting up some of this money. I'm, we're going to call it green light. So that's how it became green light. Well, it got green lit. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's good. Did. So um, tell us about the evolution of green light. Well, you know, the evolution of Greenlight, as I mentioned earlier, sort of started with Jimmy Ivey. I went to Universal Music Group. I was recruited there to start up this joint venture with Interpublic Group, and I wrote the business plan then. And we ended up not getting it off the ground because Coca-Cola had just done a very big deal with Universal Music Group where we were going to handle their music marketing for them. So I was brought in to run that. We were going to put Coca-Cola into this new joint venture. And there was a guy who was the president of Coke at the time, Stephen Heyer, who came to myself and to Jimmy and a couple of others and said, hey, don't start that business with Interpublic Group because I'm going to pull a lot of my media dollars from Interpublic Group. <laughs> so I don't want to be in business with those guys. So you guys will have to figure something else out. And this is right about the time that he put $48 million into American Idol, right at the very beginning of American Idol when nobody believed in American Idol. Coke was one of the first. That's the reason that American Idol exists is because of Coca-Cola. American Idol was around for a very long time without getting greenlit. Um, and it was Coca-Cola that said, we want a music show on television and we'll put up the media dollars for it. That's sort of where the genesis was for Greenlight is it didn't happen at Universal Music Group. And so I was sort of stuck there. Like I said, I'd spent two years 
which were incredible learning, learning from Jimmy and his whole team, you know, some of the best, in, in my opinion, Jimmy's the best when it comes to the intersection of art and commerce. He just really understands how art moves people. And if it moves you, it'll also move your wallet. <laughs> And he's very, very good at it. And I learned that. And I also looked at the music business. I looked at what he built at Interscope and Universal Music. It looks a lot like an advertising agency. And those artists, whether it's U2 or 50 Cent or Gwen Stefani, they're brands. And they all have a really interesting story. And you're communicating that story through a variety of channels. You're communicating through PR, events, content, music videos, radio promotion. And the music label has all of those different divisions. They have a PR division. They have a content division. They have a media division. They have an events division. They look very much like an advertising agency. Uh, what they lacked was a creative division that was doing branded creative um, because they didn't need that because the artists were the brands. So, um, you know, when, when Gwen Stefani... And, and, and Jimmy was the creative director and Jimmy was the strategist. So when, you know, when Gwen Stefani was part of No Doubt, Jimmy had already decided that she was going to be a breakout star on her own. And this was going to be the story that, uh, that he was going to tell about her. And a lot of people didn't know, you know, 50 Cent. And I was part of uh, 50 Cent when 50 Cent broke. Uh, but it was because of Jimmy was telling these incredible stories that were 50 stories. He had been shot nine times. You know, he was selling mixtapes on the street. And the mixtapes were becoming part of the street. And he was giving them away in barbershops. Because that's where the marketing happens. It happens on the street. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's guerrilla combat. And, uh, and that's where culture is created, right there, hand-to-hand, -hand, one to one That's experiential marketing. And so I learned that. And then when I got the opportunity to start Greenlight in earnest, I'd been wanting to do it for a few years. Corin called me out of the blue. I didn't know Corin at all. And he said, hey, I want to be in the brand marketing business. And I said, okay, cool, let's get together. So we got together and he said, I've got all these artists. I've got the Dave Matthews Band and I've got AT&T coming to me and I've got American Express and they all want to do sponsorship with us. And I need a guy to sell sponsorship. And I went, not me, dude. And I don't sell sponsorship. I have no interest in that whatsoever. And he looked at me sideways like, do you know who I am? Like, I have all these artists and you don't want to be a part of that? And I said, no, but I, I do. But I have a different idea. I want to do something different. And that's when he said, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. But he, being a great entrepreneur, he allowed me um, the financial wherewithal, uh, which I didn't have at, the, at that time to start what I wanted to start, to start this. And he believed in it. And he allowed me a lot of latitude. And I think that there was, it was kind of at a moment where a lot of people thought that was crazy when they thought branded content, brand entertainment was crazy and there wasn't any money to be made there. Now everybody's talking about it and everybody's doing it and they're not really doing a great job of it either um, because it really becomes about telling great stories. At the end of the day, it's about telling great stories, great creative that really engages people, brings them in and wants, allows them to celebrate something and then share it with friends. Uh, and that's, you know, that's socially, uh, both digitally and in person, experientially, a variety of different ways. But it all, it's usually about great creative at the end of the day. And, and uh, I think we've talked about this. Um, and doing something where you're creating culture creating some kind of content and some kind of art form, whether it's a film or a digital series or a picture or an event, a festival, something that creates and changes culture. That's what I think people are excited by. It's so amazing when you get to actually execute your vision, right? And you were given those resources to execute vision. So actually, let's take a, a look at an example of one of those executed visions. I think you can queue up. Okay, so um, just a quick setup on this. This is a project that we produced in 2016. Some of you might have seen this on the Grammy stage if you still watch the Grammys. Less and less people do these days. I think last year, 25 million people watched it down from 32 from the year before. Um, but this is the first time that a brand had ever been on stage um, at the Grammys. Um, and when I say they were on stage, they we worked for over a year 
between Intel and the Grammys and Lady Gaga to put together the next generation Grammy moment. I think most of you, if you've seen the Grammys over the years, you've seen probably some incredible Grammy moments. You can remember maybe Elton John and Eminem together. You might remember Pink descending from the rafters, a, a variety of different things. And so I went to the Grammys and I said, I have a client, Intel, and we have an idea. Um, we want to create the next generation of Grammy moments. We want that to be powered by technology. And Lady Gaga happens to be a Live Nation artist. We had a relationship with Lady Gaga, and we said, I said, I think I can bring Lady Gaga to the table and do something because she always wants to do something that is beyond because that's what great artists do. They have these amazing visions. They want to do something that no one's ever done before. And she's down for this because we're going to give her this toolkit of incredible technology that Intel has. Not a lot of people know Intel has this technology because everyone thinks that all Intel does is make Pentium chips. They actually make all kinds of things that no one knows about. So we want to share that with the world because most of the experiences that we're all having here tonight and then in most of your great entertainment experiences are actually powered by Intel in some capacity. And we want to share that with the world. So this is an example of what we did with uh, Intel and Lady Gaga. Intel is famous for powering computers on the inside. But technology has moved beyond the box. Intel needed to reconnect with a younger entertainment-hungry audience by powering an innovative display on a global stage. So we created next-generation Grammy Moments. A series of collaborative performances on the Grammy stage powered by Intel technology. Lady Gaga's stage show was the culmination of almost a year's worth of work. We built a secret rehearsal stage where over 50 technologists worked day and night developing new technologies to make it all possible. It's been fantastic because they built us this huge mock Staples Center stage. We created an integrated campaign that pulled back the curtain to show how Intel powered the performance, including TV spots that aired before and after, a short documentary film. I think what's so exciting about this collaboration is I get to shine a light on all of these scientists that are, you know, artists in my opinion. An extensive social media campaign. So I've been working with these early prototypes for a ring that ultimately is going to end up on Lady Gaga's finger. And visual art made from real-time data captured during her performance by a microcomputer in her ring. For the first time ever, we seamlessly integrated a brand onto music's biggest stage and created a global cultural moment. amazing I mean and also just the, the timing too of when David Bowie had died and when that piece came out you guys spent a year in developing that did you know that it was going to be surrounded we did not plan around? David Bowie's death yeah we definitely did not <laughs> do that I mean like, because I was trying to figure out timelines on that so when did that come in so uh, David died on uh, January 11th and the Grammys are three weeks later 
a complete turnover yeah. on the stage. Oh, wow. So we had planned, um, and not a lot of people know this, we'd actually planned, she wanted to do a tribute to Guns N' Roses. So we were doing a Guns N' Roses medley, and we were planning all of the technology around the experiences that would showcase the various songs. And when David died, um, the producer of the Grammys, Ken Ehrlich, called and said, I've had 50 artists call me. They all want to do a tribute, and I want Gaga to do it. And Ken was involved in the production of all of this, so he knew what was going on. And you can't, you, you can't say no to David, to David Bowie. I mean, she, she went and had a tattoo of David Bowie put on herself, like, the day after he asked her. Like, it's, it's, on, it's on her side. It's incredible. And so we had to change the entire performance in three weeks. We simply just looked at all the technology that we plotted throughout the performance, and we decided how we were going to use it um, within the performance. And we'd been shooting content anyhow, so we had all of this incredible content, all the footage you saw, all the technologists working. Um, so all that still existed. We just needed to change the actual performance, the live performance on stage which is rather challenging. Uh, now Rogers, who um, is the great uh, artist and producer, she uh, called Niall and said, hey, will you come in and be my musical director for the Bowie piece? Because he had produced some of the great David Bowie albums with David. So he came and I remember he sent me a scratch track after he got back from, um, from the studio with her. Because I'm thinking we're gonna do a three or four song medley. And he sends me a scratch track. Scratch track is basically, we put all the tracks together if you don't know what a scratch track is. Um, and there were 10 songs that he had strung together on this scratch track. So I called him and I said, there are 10 songs, which ones is she, she gonna do? And he goes, no, she's gonna do all 10. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. So then we had to replot everything based on the choreography and where the technology is gonna come in. And if you, the opening piece, um, she's Ziggy Stardust. She opens and um, it's just her regular Gaga face and it was the first time ever um, a human being had been live facially mapped on stage. And we did that and it didn't work in rehearsal, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, it never does. Um, but all of those things we had to sort of plan out. So that happened about three weeks in advance. Wow. Then what was the week after like, or the next day? Like, was your phone just ringing off the hook? Yeah, the next day was exactly uh, what we had hoped would happen, happened. We had everybody wondering how she did it. And the answer to that is Intel. So that's what my client was asking me to accomplish, was get people to talk about Intel in a different way. We're not just the Pentium processor company. We create amazing experiences. This was the proof point. How did Lady Gaga do that up on stage last night? How did she morph into David Bowie? Intel helped her. Um, so those were the stories that came out. And of course, we had all of that packaged and ready to go. All the behind the scenes and all of that started to pop up in the social media and Good Morning America and the coverage. And we, you know, we had seeded it all ready to go. And then, you know, just for the next week, it sort of took on a life of its own. But then, of course, you know, there's something else to move on to, which is the world we live in today. The, those moments and those experiences don't last very long in our news cycles, but they, you remember it now. Uh, if, I don't know how many people in the room actually saw that, but there were 32 million people that saw that, and a lot of people remember it now. And they'll go back in time and they're like, I remember watching the Grammys. I love that, that Lady Gaga performance when she became David Bowie. You're going to remember that. So to me, that's a highlight of, of my career because that's, I said to my team afterwards, we did that, we created culture. And that's the thing that really probably matters to me more than anything. I do that with artists and I do that with clients, with brand clients. And I think they can collaborate together to create 
really amazing experiences, and I think we proved it with that. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you turned what would normally be a boring brand, Intel, into something that was really culturally relevant and cool and added a whole new spin to who they were. So in looking at an experiential campaign and an experience that you want to create, what are some of those key factors that must be incorporated? Uh, that's a great question. You know, this is a live event, but so much of how we're going to reach people, there are only 15,000 people who can go to the Grammys, uh, but you can experience the live event live on television, so you're going to see it on your screens, and you can experience it afterwards in a variety of different content pieces. So the live component is really quite critical, um, and it's one of the reasons I'm excited about being a part of Live Nation now, because they do create 30,000 events on an annual basis. They have over 100 live music festivals. Last night at the Forum was Justin Timberlake and, and a host of other artists around the, the globe. And those live events provide incredible sets, if you will. They are great places to tell stories and to create content from. Because content is the way that we reach more people today with a live experience. But live experience is what everybody still really wants and needs and craves. Um, it's the reason live music, live events are so popular in today's marketplace. And if you look, all you have to do is look at Live Nation stock. Uh, live events. Look out at the audience. We're yeah, all you're all here. Reason. You're all here tonight um, on a Monday night. Thanks, everyone, for coming, by the way. Um, it's, we all want to be in the presence of one another. We all want to communicate in a different way. We all don't just want to be stuck on our phones all day long. Um, this is the place that we want to be. And we can share content from this, but it's really this interaction that we're having together that's human. Um, and I think that's the, the most powerful thing. And you asked me a great question about experiential, where is it going? I think there's going to be a lot more of this, a lot more of these kinds of things, because we want to go to these events, and then we want to share the stories coming out of these events. So that's sort of the like, key core element. Um, you need like an, an event and then a tentpole piece of content. Um, sometimes it's the event itself that's the tentpole. It might be a music festival. It might be a full-length documentary feature. Um, might be a variety of different things. And then there's a lot of content and stories that come off of that one tentpole. Um, as we showed there, there's social pieces, there's a short film, there are commercial elements to it. Um, there's great PR stories that you, can, that you can share with a variety of different outlets that want to then syndicate it across the globe. Um, so all of the, it all emanates from like, you know, that one sort of hero execution, that big idea. Everyone talks about the big idea. I don't really like, really like that name because all our brand clients are like, well, I just, can you bring me a big idea? Kind of, that kind of drives me crazy um, because that's what everyone's looking for. And it's so much more than just a big idea. It's, a, it's all the components that make up the big idea. And it's having the right brand strategy too. Um, which I think is really, really critical and people overlook. You can't get to the big idea if you don't have, for a brand, if you don't have the right brand strategy and you haven't identified where that brand actually fits in culture. Where does a brand like Hilton or Gillette fit in music? Um, you've got to find that story. You wouldn't think that Gillette has any role in music, would you? Yeah, they came to us and asked us, you know, we've, we're, in, we're in sports, we're huge in sports, and we're in gaming, and we know our 15 to 24-year-old young men who are just starting to shave, they love music, so what's our, we, should we sponsor a lot of music? No, don't do that, please don't do that. During the Mumford and Son years, no, the beers are in. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and we said that to them, because they're like, hey, you know, we like clean-shaven guys, so we're going we're gonna to be in music, we have to pick all clean-shaven guys. Well, that's, 15 to 24-year-old guys are not clean-shaven today. They're defining themselves with their facial hair. 
that is you know, one of the defining characteristics. That's how they personalize themselves. And we spent some time trying to figure out, do they actually have, does Gillette have any role in music? And the truth is, is that we found their role. It's backstage in preparation. Because when you think about an artist, an artist is going out every single night, and I remember this. Um, I talked to a lot of artists about Gillette um, because artists are preparing to go on stage and putting on their rock star face every single night. Uh, just as I did tonight when I got dressed to come here, I wanted to look and feel my best. I shaved, I you know, made sure my hair looked nice, and I picked out my suit. And just as you did, a lot of people are thinking about what is the face I'm going to represent in public? Um, and how do I put my rock star face on and be my best self? Rock stars do that every night. And some of them shave really cleanly, and some of them, like Tim McGraw or others, have a goatee. Um, some of them have, like Will I Am has little patches, but he shaves right here and here. And I'm mentioning these guys because we worked with all these guys, because when we sat down with them, they all told us these stories. And, and I remember sitting with um, Chris Cornell, um, rest in peace, and I asked him, I said, you know, tell me about like that moment where you, where you put on your rock star face. And, and he said, you know, there's this moment um, it's like 15 minutes before showtime. Somebody walks in the green room and says, you're on in 15. And he goes, that's my holy shit moment. <laughs> then he goes, that, then I go from being Chris to being Chris Cornell, the rock star. Somehow I got to get up there on stage feeling sick and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And I got to put my rock star face on. I got to go do it. So everybody has that. And it's a very sort of, again, human experience for all of us as people. We all want to look, feel, and be our best. And so that's how we found Gillette's role in music. And we created a, a short film series called Gillette Uncut. I mean, it really just takes peeling back the layers and asking these deeper lifestyle questions of a brand to really find the root of where their campaign's going to go. And it's things like that that are absolutely beautiful and are a story in itself. Yeah. So what happened when Hilton came to you and said, I want to, you know, Hilton has this incredible history that a lot of people don't know, but how are we going to create a relationship with music in an era where people don't know us to be a place for music? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and Hilton didn't even really realize they had a history in music. Um, the marketers that were there currently, they just knew they wanted to use music as a vehicle for, um, for experiences that people would have. So they'd already partnered with Live Nation before I came on the scene. They'd had a two-year deal with Live Nation, actually had a five-year deal with Live Nation. They were two years into it. And the Hilton, the guy that runs Hilton Honors, Mark Mark Weinstein came to us. He said, we've got this great partnership with Live Nation and people are going onto our site and redeeming their Hilton Honors points to go to U2 and Justin Timberlake and these great experiences. But somehow we're not really connected to that experience and we don't have like an overarching strategy or really a, a, an idea that's associated with that. So can you guys help us do that? And what we usually do at the beginning of that process, we spend you know, 30, 60, 90 days with the brand, and we really start exploring where their role in culture, where do they belong in music, where do they belong in sports, where do they belong in film or fashion or whatever it might be. And for Hilton, it was pretty simple um, because they have this incredibly rich history in music that they totally had overlooked. They, had a, they already had a partnership with the Grammys. And the reason they had a partnership with the Grammys, they'd had one going on 30 years, is because the first Grammys ever was at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles. And they're like, they totally overlooked that. Amazing. They also overlooked the fact that John Lennon had written Imagine on Hilton stationery. Like the original John Lennon manuscript is on Hilton stationery, uh, Hilton, New York. 
the original bed-in with John and Yoko was at the Hilton Amsterdam, the first sort of late-night um, speakeasy in the country is at the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, um, where Louis Armstrong used to play. That's a Hilton hotel. They have like incredibly rich stories, and so Hilton, being they describe as the most hospitable brand in the world, they want people to come to these cities for uh, experiences, not just in their hotel, but to get out in the city and experience the hotel and experience the music and the culture of that city. They're the doorstep to that experience. So that's how we really positioned it um, for them in this piece we're gonna show in just a second uh, called Music Happens Here. And it's the first time ever that really three of the biggest music brands in the world had come together with Live Nation and they already had a partnership with, the Grammys. And then we brought in Spotify, which is the world's biggest music streaming company now. Um, so the, you know, three of the world's biggest music brands partnered with, the, at the time, the world's biggest hospitality company. And I think um, Starwood and Marriott are bigger now. They, they just merged. Um, but we put them together and we created this whole program, very integrated into nature with live events and artist meet and greets with Hilton Honors members and points redemptions, uh, a full-length documentary series that we ran on Spotify. There were 30-minute episodes about these cities, about Los Angeles and New York and New Orleans, and great uh, music happens moments here there, including a beat, and we call it a beat, a section with, um, with a Hilton moment, because those are real moments. Like We could tell the Los Angeles story with the Doors and with Guns N' Roses and with the first ever Grammys that happened at the Beverly Hilton and have that be truly authentic because that's a Los Angeles story. So let's, if you can run the video, please. We're going to stay in bed for seven days. It's a private protest. Hilton has a storied yet often forgotten history in music from hosting the first ever Grammy Awards to capturing the lyrics of a masterpiece. That Hilton stationery contains all the lyrics that we now know as the song Imagine. So to inspire travel and points redemption for the latest Hilton Honors campaign, we wanted to build off that heritage to tell unexpected music stories in seven destination cities. But these stories weren't just about artists. They were about locations, the places where music really happened. We partnered with Spotify to create a brand new documentary series. This is the house where one of the most famous bands in the world actually played together for the first time. The Stash House was a hub for the ASAP mob. To tell the unknown stories behind music's most seminal settings. Cameras were filming police officers beating American kids. I saw that. And that anger is what I poured into my song, Chicago. And invited current bands to record covers of classic songs specific to key locations. This place is a rarity, and you can feel some history that's left. The song is about picking up drugs from your dealer on a street corner. We created an interactive walking tour and playlist on Spotify for guests to explore their destination cities and put on exclusive live performances at legendary music venues. See some of the places where Louis Armstrong played. I want to try to grab all of that. I see trees of green treating guests to intimate one-on-one -on -one artist connections. 
today is especially neat that we get to connect, you know, one-on-one -on -one with some really neat fans. Turning cities around the world into musical playgrounds for existing Hilton Honors members to enjoy and new members to discover. Too. Yeah, I yeah. No idea about all of that rich history. If you and have I'm, Spotify, watch the series. It's really, I think it's really good. Cool. <laughs> and how brilliant for Spotify to get into that kind of content too. Yeah, well, Spotify is a pretty amazing company, um, and they've grown so quickly. And original content is an area that they are in now, and they're experimenting a lot of different ways. So um, we've known those guys for a long time. We were able to go to them and say, we have this really interesting idea which is usually what we say to people. We don't usually say, hey, I've got Hilton. Hey, I've got Gillette. Hey, I've got American Express. We usually say, we've got this really cool idea. What do you think? Oh, and by the way, Hilton's a part of it, or Gillette's a part of it, or something. And, um, and usually, if the idea and the content are great, if they're good enough, and you would choose to watch it, and you guys would choose to watch it, whether a brand produced it or not, then you know it's just great entertainment. And, and I think that's probably uh, the definition of great branded content, branded entertainment, brand experiences. When you choose it because you want to choose it, because it's really good, it doesn't matter whether Hilton brought it to you and Hilton's a part of creating it, or Ely Coffee or American Express. All that matters is that it's great and that you want to share it and celebrate it. Now, just to wrap up this portion um, before we go out to audience questions, um, we focus so much on experience and a large majority of advertising still operates in the traditional realm of outside being billboards, print, TV commercials, things like that. And yet we find that there's some bit of a disconnect between the experiences of seeing something in a traditional format versus being in an event or seeing something digitally. What do you believe the role is between those two? And is there a, a harmonious relationship? Do you foresee a harmonious relationship? Yeah, well, I mean, you were telling me about something earlier today that you're working on with Audi and their, what's the name of the company? Silver Car. Silver Car. Silver Car is their rental car company, right? It's all at on demand rental. You can rent an Audi A4 and Q5 exclusively through Silver Car. Yeah, and, um, and then, <laughs> well, you were telling me about that, and you're doing branded content with them, and then they were doing something out of Coachella as well, which right. was, uh, yeah. we had outdoor advertising, correct? Yes, we did. And, uh, and you were able to look at that outdoor advertising and drive people to an experience on an app, correct? And, and in person, we created a full integration on that. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really great example, and, um, and I think that there's a lot more of that that's starting to happen again. I think marketers like me and marketers like yourself are starting to think, how can I use the more traditional elements that people um, are used to seeing in a more innovative and unique way in the future? Um, how can it interact with my screen? How can it interact with an experience I want, them, I want to drive them to? Um, we're, we have a client, um, Sierra Nevada Brewing. Um, it's the first time they've ever like done any advertising. We, we don't, I don't consider what we do. We're not an advertising agency. We're, we're a creative company, and we work with brands. Um, so sometimes we create ad-like objects, I call them. Um, <laughs> but we're talking to them about a program right now where we would build outdoor advertising with them. Um, but that outdoor advertising would be living greenery um, with their with their logo on it and um, because one of the things that they stand for is enjoying outdoors. Um, the founder of the company 
moved to Chico and called Chico, California and called Sierra Nevada, Sierra Nevada, because he loves hiking and he loves, and he's invested in preserving nature. He's, nobody knows that he's one of the most charitable guys, uh, certainly in the state of California, but on, uh, in the U.S. in helping preserve outdoors and nature and trail hikes and national parks and things of that nature. And, uh, and so we're going to start to bring that forward a little bit um, and allow people to look up at outdoor advertising in a brand new way and hopefully get them to think about going outside. It might not be necessarily tied into a digital experience. It, I mean, we'll have some elements that are, but we want people to think about going outside and getting outside and enjoying the outdoors and having a great beer. There's so much that you can do with that in a gamification capacity. You know, you incentivize people to go take a photo of themselves outside and then tie it in with the overall digital campaign. But you incentivize the the outdoor experience, you know, create activities for them. Yeah, I think I think the opportunities are really cool. And I think it's just about um, kind of rethinking uh, how you use those those older formats, because I think um, I, my, my office is up on Sunset Boulevard, so I drive by all these tall walls every single day. I don't know how many of you drive on Sunset Boulevard, but I love it personally. It's like this really unique experience of Los Angeles. It's part of culture in Los Angeles to drive down Sunset Boulevard, and there's a romance to it for me. I mean, you see all of the like all the big entertainment companies have their latest movie coming and you know the the coolest brands have their you know H&M and others have their billboards up there and the, the Netflix is up there you just feel like you're right in the midst of it and i think their locations part of it too you know how you think about location with outdoor advertising is really interesting too cuz we want to pick places where you're part of that cultural experience I learned quite the lesson on outdoor advertising. I mean, there is a whole science to like what you put on the board and how large your words are and like you can't put too much and placement and all these things. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.